All right, a couple of announcements just to remind everyone about. Uh, first of all, um, we're not going to have men's prayer breakfast in November or December because of a lot of other other things, and we will reboot in January. Uh, but we have our deacons meeting this coming Saturday morning at 8.30. Also, uh, it's always good if people can come to pre-trib. That is December 5th through 7th. And so on that Tuesday night, which would be December the 6th, we will not have Bible class at all because we that's our tradition. And then on the following Sunday, on December 11th, we'll have our Christmas dinner, and there will be options for you to sign up, bring sides and things like that, and that information uh, will be sent out in a timely uh, timely manner. Also, as we've been announcing about the Israel trip for a while, and I have been saying that uh, we would be getting information out, uh, part of the delay has been in just uh, going through various details in terms of negotiations and trying to find the best pricing uh, for various things in in the trip. And so that's that's the big cause of the delay. And um, so I think everything is has settled, and we have posted the uh, some of the important information people want, which is when's it going to be, how much is it going to cost, what are the options, things of that nature. That has been posted on the news page of the deanbibleministries.org website on the right-hand column. So that information is there, and if you have sent your sent in information requesting to be informed about the trip then that is um, uh, that you will have been sent that information today. There will be some more information sent out, more extensive uh, detail sent out uh, in the next, uh, probably in about two weeks as I'm, I'm working on the, what I have a tour tips uh, document that I send out that's multiple pages long, and I'm in the process of revising that. So anyway, that that settles that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness." Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's remember that we need to make sure that we are spiritually prepared to study the Word. Anytime we are studying the Word, that is a form of worship, and so we must 
worship by means of the Spirit, which means we need to make sure we are walking according to the Spirit, by means of the Spirit, and not according to the sin nature. So if necessary, uh, we may need to confess sin in silent prayer to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer as we start, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our fathers, we look at the world around us, we see chaos, we see war, we see turmoil. The war between Russia and Ukraine is personal because we know people in Ukraine. We have missionaries there. We have uh, people we know and have worked with, people who have been in this congregation uh, visiting. And so we understand this at a more uh, visceral level. And, Father, we do pray for those people. We know that they're having tremendous ministry, that their focus is upon you. But when the missiles explode, when power goes off, when the Internet goes down, uh, it is still a time of uh, maybe fear, worry, anxiety, discouragement. And, Father, we pray that you would strengthen them and that they may be a light to those around them, great opportunities to uh, share the gospel, present the gospel. Father, we're thankful that we've been able to get uh, the Promise Book translated into different languages and distributed those uh, to those especially on the front lines. And, Father, we, we do pray that you would continue to use that to get the gospel into the hands of those uh, who would respond to it. And, Father, we pray for the wisdom of the nations as they determine how to best handle this, and we know there's just so much corruption and self-absorption, and, and um, uh, oh, it's just, just incredible, but that's the way it's always been as we understand judges. So, Father, we pray that you would uh, just strengthen those who are there to be uh, stand firm in the gospel and that you would continue to enable us, strengthen us as a body of believers to pray for them, to support them, and we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Today there were between 80, according to one report, 100, according to another report, missiles that were fired by the Russians into um, into Ukraine today. Igor texted me today around uh, uh, 9.30 this morning. More than 100 rockets attacked Ukraine today, uh, Jatomer included. Uh, they have no electricity in Jatomer at that time, and the Internet was off and on. And so they, he said they expect more attacks. Uh, they are at home. They're not in a shelter. And the attacks were not near them, but they were attacks on the electrical infrastructure uh, of the city. And it also impacted the entire, uh, entire region. And if you haven't heard, two of the missiles went into Poland and killed two Polish uh, citizens. And last I read, which was six or seven hours ago, the Polish government was meeting um, to decide how they were going to handle that. So that is going on there and um, and in um, 
and in uh, Kiev as well as many other places. Although when I talked to Jim Myers today, he had talked uh, with Oleg. Now, remember, Jim does not live in Kiev. He lives about 20 miles to the northeast of Kiev in a small town, small village called uh, uh, Rzevka. And that's where Oleg lives and Vova, Natalie, and I think uh, some others in the church live out there. And Oleg reported that they have had just the normal electrical outages as they have all the time, nothing special and hasn't been uh, di- too, very disruptive. So for by the grace of God, things are going well for them. But we need to continue to pray for them and uh, those that we know uh, and work with that are in uh, harm's way frequently because they are in the, in the military. So that's just an update on uh, what is going on with them. And then I was uh, had planned uh, to go see uh, Pastor Herman Maddox over the uh, Sunday or yesterday, and he's not doing well, and he continues to have uh, bleeding on the brain. The doctors don't know where it is, or it's not, you know, not like a stroke, but it is not good, and they can't operate. And so um, the Lord will probably take him home. Um, soon. We don't know whether it will be days, weeks, or months, but he is not doing well. So please continue to pray for uh, Herman Maddox. All right, let's open our Bibles to Judges, Judges chapter 11, and we're going to wrap up tonight. Uh, Jephthah's daughter looking at the last part of Judges 11, and then I'm going to end a little early, probably about 20 after 8, and then Paul Scharf, who is the regional uh, representative for Friends of Israel is going to come up and do a couple of things in terms of updating us on what is going on with Friends of Israel. I get emails from them regularly. I get emails from so many people. I just cannot keep up or keep them all straight uh, anymore. So I'm going to be glad to hear this, but I know FOI has several things going on that uh, some of you may be interested in. So we're looking at Jephthah's daughter. We looked at the vow last time. We're going to look at Jephthah's daughter. What's interesting is the that as we look at this episode, that it appears to be almost an afterthought in the narrative. However, it is the centerpiece of this narrative, for, and that is indicated stylistically for a couple of different reasons, one of which is the vow is given and then the, it shifts back to the narrative of the battle and then it shifts back to his daughter and some of the language that we'll look at in relation to his daughter uh, stands out and is designed to draw attention uh, to, uh, to the daughter and to bring... Uh, to the reader's mind, a similar and very different type of, of sacrifice. So that is that is uh, that's important to understand. So the focus focal point here is on uh, is on the daughter. We went through this last week, talking about the battle and looking at the map, and it is on this. Uh, right-hand side of the map, which is the east side across the Jordan, the Transjordan, where the Ammonites are attacking. God has allowed them, brought them as divine discipline against the uh, paganized uh, Israelites, 
And so uh, Jephthah has been chosen by the Israelites to be their leader to fight against the Ammonites. Notice I did not say God raised him up because the text does not say that. God allowed that in his permissive will to uh, raise him up. And secondly, God's spirit came upon him to give him military skill for victory. But beyond that, this is interesting situation because God is really in the background. And that is pointing out the fact that Israel is not in right relationship with the Lord. They are they have not uh, truly turned away from their idolatry, but God in his grace is uh, providing for them a deliverance. And so um, this, is imp- this is important for us to understand. Last time we looked at uh, the fact that Jephthah demonstrated tremendous skill and a great uh, way in which he uses language in his negotiations with the Ammonites, and it shows that he has a fairly decent grasp of Israel's history, even though he misses on a few details. Now, when we talk about the doctrine of inerrancy, what we have is God the Holy Spirit is accurately reporting what Jephthah said, it doesn't extend to the fact that Jephthah said always the correct and accurate thing. And so, but nevertheless, he is able to um, uh, present the case, historical case and theological case and uh, personal case again, and logical case against the Ammonite king. So that was part of what we studied last time. And then there's his his horrific vow that is uh, not understood by a lot of people. Um, and it is really an example, and I'll talk more about this either at the end tonight or maybe in the introduction next time. It is an example of the complete breakdown of the divine institutions in under paganism. And we're seeing this same kind of thing today. Uh, We see the breakdown of personal responsibility, which we've seen in various ways in these episodes. That's personal responsibility toward God. First and foremost, our divine institution, number one, is that personal and individual responsibility for the decisions we make in life. And they are not making the right decisions, and they are suffering the consequences for that in terms of divine discipline but then they they don't want to take responsibility for their spiritual decisions. And when individuals in a culture are not living responsibly before God, then when they get married, they will continue to not live responsibly before God, and there will be a breakdown in marriage. And we see this exemplified in this chapter as Jephthah is the bastard son of a prostitute and Gilead, who has formed an immoral alliance with a, a prostitute who is unnamed, and that is Jephthah's mother. And then uh, Jephthah's uh, uh, half-brothers kick him out of the country when he comes of age. And so we see the breakdown of the family. And then we see that further evidenced in what happens with this vow, it's a breakdown of the family, and it's a breakdown of, of Jephthah's 
a responsible leadership as the father. And so that's divine institution number one and divine institution number three. And I alluded to this or mentioned this last time that what you have is uh, radical feminists who use this as a way of showing how evil patriarchy is. No, this is an example of an evil form of patriarchy. The Bible, the Bible clearly states that God established a family with the husband as the head of the wife and the parents as the authority over the children. But because of sin and because of corruption, this often goes badly. And everything goes badly because of sin. And so you see an example here that when a nation it has divorced itself from God and divorced itself from the divine institutions, then it affects everything. And so things began to fall apart. You began to see a lot of chaos in the culture. And you see the impact of paganism on how men and women lose their uh, their understanding of what it means to be a man and a husband biblically, what it means to be a wife and a mother biblically. And it's interesting that in this episode, we have Jephthah and his daughter, and there's no mention of the mother. We don't know. The daughter is left unnamed. But the daughter is the one who stands out with a degree of integrity and virtue and her willingness to do what is the right thing to do under the law as she understands it, which is wrong, and I'll point that out. But she is uh, willing to submit to her father's authority, abusive as it is. It's a, it's a horrible example, example and an extreme example of parental abuse all child sacrifice and all of the infant sacrifice that was practiced by the uh, Canaanites and by other ancient cultures is just the the uh, what happens when parents don't know their responsibilities before God as uh, and their responsibilities over their children and it's it's just a horrible thing and I touched on this uh, some uh, last time in Judges 11, 29 to 31, we see what happens when uh, Jephthah um, is going to, uh, is prepares for battle. 11, 29 tells us that the Spirit of the, of the Lord came upon Jephthah and that what results from that in that verse is the result of, of, this, of the Spirit's leadership. It is not the vow that's a result of the Spirit's leadership because the vow is contrary to Scripture. Uh, so he, um, it is the leadership that, that Jephthah uh, possessed traveling through the nation, calling upon the people to uh, respond to his call to raise troops and to raise an army to go against the Ammonites. And so that is the focal point of verse 29. And then there is what appears to be a very brief statement about the vow, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. 
and we studied this last time, showing that the phraseology is uh, very distinctive. It's a quick statement of the vow. It parallels other vows that are made in the Old Testament, but there are differences because of what is vowed. What is vowed here is uh, is that whatever comes out of the door of his house to greet him will be offered as a burnt offering. One would think he's not anticipating that it will be his daughter, but that it would be an animal. Now, people have had trouble with this because of what is stated in Hebrews 11, 32 to 34. And so the problem that has often occurred in the history of the interpretation of this passage is that people interpret the Old Testament in light of the New instead of the other way around. And they don't look at the purpose for the book of Judges, which is to demonstrate that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So they come to this and think that these are examples of of spiritual greatness. Now, if you're an unbelieving pagan feminist and you don't like the Bible at all, then you come to this and you think these guys are heroes, and in some sense, they are, but you have to define it and refine it on the basis of context. And so what what they do is they come to this and say, see, these guys are held up as spiritual Hebrew, he, heroes, and they're abusive, and this guy's sacrificing his daughter, and all of this is horrible. And so they, they use that to paint uh, Christia- Judaism and Christianity and God with a very uh, negative stroke. Writer of Hebrews says, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson. Notice he doesn't mention Deborah or Othniel or Ehud. Uh, Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. And those four are have negatives against him. Gideon led the nation back into idolatry, and it was his... A uh, son of a concubine, Abimelech, who brought uh, another level of, of uh, idolatry into the nation, along with uh, Gideon. And you have Barak, who is not exactly your picture of masculine leadership in Judges chapter 4 and 5. Samson, about whom nothing good is said in, uh, in, in Judges, he's a womanizer. He violates his Nazarene vow whenever he can. And uh, then we have David and Samuel, and they are much more uh, evident of, of believers who are mature, although we have David's uh, sins at several points. The Bible does not hold back on that. And uh, Samuel's negative is that his children are all pretty much worthless. And um, then the mention of the prophets. But they excelled because at critical points they trusted in God's promise, and God was true to his promise and delivered the nation. That's verse 33. Through faith, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. That would be Daniel, who is not mentioned in verse 32 quench the violence of fire, escape the edge of the sword out of weaknesses, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle. That applies to uh, Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, and uh, Samson just there at the end of his life, well, in some other instances as well, I would, I would say, um, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. So that's what they did. 
It doesn't say they were great spiritual giants. It doesn't say that they, we are to emulate them because of their close walk with the Lord. Uh, but it is that shows a God's grace because a lot of us sometimes aren't a lot better. And so it is a picture of the, the, the grace of God. So we see in verse 30 that Yipta, Jephthah, vowed a vow to Yahweh and said, if you will surely give the sons of Ammon into my hand, it will be that whatever comes out of the door of my house to greet me when I return in peace, I will offer up as a burnt offering. That is the Hebrew word ola. As I pointed out last time, this always means a burnt offering. It never means just a sacrifice of some other kind or an offering of some other kind. And so it is very clear that this, even though this always refers to an animal sacrifice, not a human sacrifice, it is nevertheless very clear that that his vow is that whatever comes out of the house is going to be uh, immolated as a burnt offering. So I pointed out in Genesis 28, 20, Jacob's vow, Numbers 21, 2, Israel made a vow to the Lord. First Samuel 1, 11, uh, there's a vow to the Lord in second Samuel 15, 7. There's, uh, Abimel, I mean, Absalom makes up this, probably makes up this tale about a vow, but they're all basically the same, that if God will do such and so, then I will devote, uh, I will do something, uh, in obedience to God. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of scholars have said there's no such thing as child sacrifice, that it's not held so much today. And I pointed out in Deuteronomy 12.31 and Deuteronomy 18.10 that before the Israelites entered the land and began to conquer the Canaanites, that they are warned twice in Deuteronomy by Moses not to get involved in the idolatry of the Canaanites because it entails, uh, one of the reasons not to, is it entails child sacrifice. So there is the assumption there that child sacrifice was a reality in uh, Canaan at the time. And I pointed out that later there's also evidence of child sacrifice. And I pointed out also that there's evidence from Carthage. And in fact, archaeologists, I mentioned this last time, I have more detail now, uh, archaeologists discovered at a site named Tophet, which is from the 8th century B.C. So that's 700 B.C. The period we're looking at here is probably 12 or 1100 B.C., uh, somewhere in the 12th century B.C., so it's uh, three or 400 years earlier. But in Carthage, going back to at least the 700s, uh, there were, uh, they uncovered a site, uh, where they, uh, where the remains of children's bones who were sacrificed to the gods Baal Hamon and the goddess Tanit had been found. And there were layers and layers of these, uh, pots that were fi- found with the remains of the children's, the bones of infants and bones of children. And even though these, they, they were in urns and they had lids on them, uh, it was quite shocking to the archaeologists to find so, so many of them. And so this was, um, a typical at that, at that particular time. I pointed out this particular, um, 
uh, inscription on one of the one of the urns to Our Lady to Tanit, a false goddess, uh, the face of Baal, and to Our Lord the Baal Hamon, that which was vowed by um, name, son of so and so, son of so and so, because he that is uh, the deity Baal Hamon heard uh, this person's voice and blessed him. So this was the way pagans thought, and they took this seriously. They believed that this would change the course of their lives, that it would change the thinking of the god or goddess, and it is not that they frivolously burned their children on the altars, but they believed that that was the only way they could um, get a positive answer uh, to their prayers. Uh, this is not uncommon in the ancient world. If you look at Greek, some of the Greek tragedies, there is the legend of Iphigenia, who is the daughter of Agamemnon, who vowed to sacrifice to Artemis the most beautiful creature born that year within his kingdom, and that creature turned out to be his uh, his daughter. And when uh, he wavered. The prophet uh, Calchas declared to him that a fleet of, sheet, of ships had been grounded for weeks and that they would be released by a favorable wind only if he sacrificed his daughter. So what I am saying here is that this is normative in pagan thought in the ancient world. So just as a footnote, for those of you who think, how could it get any worse than it is right now? Guess what? It can be a lot worse. Uh, we have, and it is. I think there are subcultures in this country where it is, uh, where they are practicing some of these things, um, and they are very secretive. And every now and then, something leaks out in the news. But this, we live in a time when evil uh, does is growing in our in our uh, nation. So um, another thing to point out, I talked about this last time, but I finally found these these images. They are from, uh, they relate to talking about the manger and the location of the manger at the time of the birth of our Savior. And so you'll see that in the titles for these slides. But in the typical layout in a home, uh, the ground floor would be somewhat elevated, and then they would have an a, like this. This is a door coming into a, a lower level, and that this was where they would bring uh, their favored animals in in inclement weather in order to protect them. So when you look at uh, the Luke two story about them coming and not finding a room at the end. The Greek word translated in there is really the same word that's used to describe the upper room at later on in Luke when Jesus sends his disciples to uh, find a home and they find a home and they will uh, prepare the upper room for the observance of uh, the Seder meal, the Passover meal, the night before he went to the cross. And so it's not the word that is used for the inn in the episode with the Good Samaritan, where um, 
the good Samaritan. The Samaritan sees the uh, the Jew who has been mugged on the side of the highway going to Jericho, and he picks him up, binds his wounds, uh, takes him to an inn. And that word for inn is not the same word as the word in Luke chapter 2. So Luke chapter 2 is not talking about local Motel 6 that was didn't have the lights on anymore and wasn't filled up, uh, and was filled up, excuse me. Uh, this is something different. So inside the house, you would have the family on the ground floor, but down below you would have these uh, feeding troughs for the animals. Here's another depiction. Uh, Lagos has uh, done this. Uh, and you have the typical first century Jewish home, but things didn't change that much. It wasn't like every two or three decades you had a whole new architectural style coming along. And so what you have is that on the ground floor, sometimes part of the first floor is where animals would stay. Here's another, another depiction. So when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him. I mean, she is celebrating. She's got tambourines, timbrels, and dancing. And the text says, and I want you to catch this. There, there's a pathos here. There is great drama here. Said that um, she was his only child. Uh, besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. So it wasn't enough to just say she is his only child, but she is, uh, his, there's no other son or daughter. She's it. Now, it goes on to say in verse 35, it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes. That is an extreme expression of grief in the ancient world. He tore his clothes and said, and he would have cried out, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. Now, we have to point out several things that are going on here, because the, the, the writer here is really compressing a lot. And so we have to uh, he goes through it very rapidly, but we have to sort of slow down and catch some of the things that are going on here. So when he says this, this is his only child, he uses this word yachid. Yachid is not used very often in the Old Testament. It's used a few times later on in the prophets, but at this point, it has only been used once before. And guess what? You might think that God knew that, that he's making a connection, and that the writer of Judges understands that, because it's used only one time previous to this, and it's not used again in this sense until you get into some of the later prophets. And so we have to uh, catch uh, the drama and significance of what is going on here. This word is used three times in Genesis chapter 22. This is the episode where God, this is the last test. Abraham goes through a series of tests, testing his faith in God's promise in the Abrahamic covenant. 
And he fails them several times. Finally, he gets it that God has promised him that a child from, uh, of his and Sarah's will be the seed, that it, this is Isaac, that he will be the one through whom God will fulfill his promises, that there will be an untold, <clears throat> untold number of descendants that would come through this son. And so he tells Isaac, I mean, he tells Abraham, take now your son, your Yaquid, your only son, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. You see the parallel? Abraham, who is a faithful, obedient believer, is now being tested by God and being told by God to take his only son to offer him as a burnt offering. Now, when the writer of Judges under inspiration by the Holy Spirit writes this, he uses the same word because he wants people to recognize he's drawing a contrast between Abraham and Jephthah. Your only son whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, offer him there as a burnt offering, an olah. And then later in Genesis 22:12, God says, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. See, it was a test. God never intended for Abraham to kill Isaac. But not only that, we're told in Hebrews 11 that Isaac had come to the point where he realized that if he did take Isaac's life, God would raise him from the dead because he knew God was going to fulfill his promise through Isaac. And so that was the final test. He had no reservations whatsoever in obeying God because he trusted God finally. So again, uh, Isaac is referred to as your Yaquid, your only son. Genesis twenty-two sixteen. 16, uh, by myself, God says, I have sworn that because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Three times Yaquid is used in Genesis 22. It's not used anywhere else until you get to, to Judges 11. You think maybe that God is trying to make a point here and wants us to observe that, that there's a connection here. And so there are uh, connections, and it's not original with me to point this out and to recognize this, but there are several contrasts. Uh, on the left, I have some uh, things happening in Genesis 22, and on the right, Judges 11. In Genesis 22, it's a long story. It really starts back in Genesis 12 with God's promise and then his ongoing um his ongoing uh, testing of Abraham. And so there's a deliberate, detailed focus on the sacrifice. It takes It's a lot developed in Genesis 22. But in Judges 11, it's abridged, and the, the, the vow and the fulfillment of the vow is summarized in only five words. It's quick. It, the writer, it's like he just doesn't want to think about the horror of what he is describing. Uh, in Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac is the focal point and the climax of the narrative. In Judges 11, it appears to be somewhat secondary, but when you come to think about it, because of the use of this word yakid and some other things, you realize this is really a critical turning point in the whole story because Jephthah is a picture of the nation. 
and how paganism has affected the nation. Um, the third point is that the, the sacrifice in Genesis 22 was a test of the faithfulness of Abraham, but Jephthah's vow was really uh, uh, tested the faithfulness of God to continue to deliver Israel, even though they have become paganized. In Genesis 22, God initiated the command to sacrifice Isaac, but in Judges 11, it's Jephthah out of his syncretistic religion. He's he just merged different elements from different things, and it, he uh, initiates it from that pagan theology. Genesis 22, Abraham is obedient and trusts God to do the right thing. And Judges 11, uh, actually in Judges 11, if you look back on uh, verse 27, it's uh, Jephthah makes this same point, but he doesn't apply it. He says, therefore, I have not sinned against you, that is, in his negotiations with the Ammonite king, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. He is recognizing the principle that God, uh, that, that God is just and he'll do the right thing, but then he makes this vow. So Jephthah sinfully and abusively destroys the, do- the life of his daughter, and by doing so, he destroys his, the future of his own lineage, his own line. Uh, Abraham loves his only son. There's no indication that Jephthah does. I'll point that out, show that in just a minute. He seems more, I misspelled, concerned. He seems more concerned about himself, and his daughter goes alone to the mountain to grieve. Jephthah does not go with her. Uh, in Genesis 22, the sacrifice conf- that God provided in place of Isaac confirmed Abram's faith, and it con- in Judges 11, it confirmed Jephthah's faithlessness. So then we see Jephthah's response. He says, it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, alas, my daughter. This is the Hebrew word, bat, B-A-T, is the word for daughter. When you uh, say my daughter, you add a first-person singular uh, suffix, which is biti. And so he says, alas, my daughter. What's the emphasis? He says, my, several times. My daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me. Basically, he's saying, it's your fault. You came out of the house. Not my fault. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. In fact, um, one writer says uh, that this should be translated, uh, you have driven me to my knees, if we were to put this into English idiom. Another one says this should be translated as, you are responsible for my ruin. He's blaming her for his vow. He is self-absorbed. That's the orientation of pagan thought. It's all about me. So we're not the first generation to be that way. And it's all about him and... Uh, but look at the contrast. Note her integrity. She says to him, My father, if you've given your word to the Lord, you must do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged your enemies. Interesting word there, nakam. Uh, 
is the same word when the Lord says um, uh, that that he will uh, execute vengeance on our enemies. And we translate that word vengeance. We think of vengeance as something that is totally self-motivated. I'm going to get my revenge. I'm going to be satisfied. That's a negative side of it. The word really is can be negative or positive depending on the context. It relates to the execution of justice. And she, in a sense, is reminding him of the principle back in verse 27, that the Lord, the judge, let him render judgment. And she is saying the the Lord has rendered judgment and given you victory over the Ammonites, so you have to do what you said you would do. She has this sense. But it also reveals that neither one of them really understand anything about the law of Moses. They're under the Torah, but within the Torah, there are uh, he's got a number of options. He does not have to uh, fulfill his vow in the sense of making her burnt offering. In Leviticus 27, uh, we read, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man consecrates or sets apart by a vow certain persons to the Lord according to your valuation, if your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years, then your valuation should be 50 shekels of silver. In other words, you can redeem him from the vow with just paying a, a tax to the temple of 50 shekels. If it's a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. Now, this, you know, feminists will come along and say, see, God diminishes women. Uh, well, a woman took care of the house and did a lot of things and had a lot of value, but the man was the head of the home, and he was the one who did most of the work, so he's responsible for taking care of everyone. So it's not because she is ontologically less valuable than the male. It has to do with the economics within the house. Uh, so he goes on to say, so there's there's this way out, and and they are ignorant of it. So she said let, in verse 37, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. Now, the alternate view that evangelicals opt for, which has no support really from Scripture, uh, except for some passages much later on, is that she could be set apart to serve in the temple. But that's not what's going on here. That, that, there's nothing in the text to indicate that. The reason she is bewailing her virginity is she will not be able to live, to be married, and to have children. And a great, uh, a great ideal among Jewish women was that they would be the mother of the Messiah. And so they look forward to that, and that in a real way they are fulfilled because they are the ones who are providing for the, uh, the child who will continue the line into the future. There's a Chinese proverb that says if a person has no past, they will have no future. Jephthah sort of embodies that, that he doesn't have much of a past, and now he's destroying his future. And so his line will end with with his daughter and with what he does here. So the consecration here is to grieve over the fact that she will not grow to maturity and to get married and to have a child. So he says, go, and he sends her away, but he doesn't go with There's no real sign of compassion or love here. She goes with her friends, and they grieve over her virginity in the mountains. So this is 
uh, what is taking place here. Verses 39 and 40 we read, And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow. Look at that. He carried out his vow. Five words. Just let's get past this. Uh, the vow which he, which with her, which he had vowed. You can't get around this. He vowed that it, she would, that whatever came out of the door of his house would be a burnt offering. And the text says he did what he vowed. There's no wiggle room. So this became a festival. She is honored. Jephthah is not. She is remembered. She had integrity. Jephthah is not. There's a principle in Scripture that the sacrifices were not what God's really after. Micah 6, 6. We'll close with this. Micah 6, 6 through 6, 8. With what shall I come before the Lord? What shall I bring to the Lord? And bow myself before the high God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The answer, of course, is no. Rhetorical question expecting a negative. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? See, the sacrifices were all just training aids to teach about the horrors of sin, the need for uh, the payment of a sin price, all looking forward to the Messiah. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This was completely lost on Jephthah. And we'll come back next time, wrap it up, and go through uh, Judges 12, which is the transition from Jephthah to uh, Samson, the last judge that is in the book. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer, and then Paul's going to come up and uh, give us an update on what's going on with Friends of Israel and some other things. So just stay seated, and we'll transition to him in just a minute. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Again and again in this book, we see your grace to sinners. We see your grace to Israelites because of your covenant with Abraham, because of your covenant with Moses, that you have made these promises, and so you could not destroy Israel, no matter how rebellious and pagan they became. And the same is true for us as believers. There are times when we are very rebellious and very sinful, but your grace always meets us with forgiveness. And, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that we have a Savior who paid the penalty in full for our sins and that we have salvation by simply trusting in him and what he accomplished on the cross as being sufficient, that we can add nothing to it. We cannot make ourselves more savable. We cannot make ourselves uh, better. We can only rely on the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us. And so that is our only plea. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we learn here 
especially the need to be faithful in the same kind of horrible cultural situation that uh, Jephthah was in. And we see the same kind of horrible abuse, the same kind of breakdown in marriage and family as is seen in this period because a culture that is self-absorbed is self-destructive. So, Father, we pray that we might have grace and wisdom to be faithful to you throughout this time, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Paul, I have to disconnect. Thank you, Pastor Dean. Thank you, everyone, for this opportunity to be with you this evening. I am Paul Scharf, a Church Ministries representative for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. Delighted to be with you tonight here at West Houston Bible Church and uh, grateful for this opportunity to be back with you here in the Houston area and just uh, appreciative of the opportunity to give you a short update. I appreciate your church and its ministry and uh, Pastor Dr. Dean and I often consult his messages and uh, I'm thankful for the magnitude of the effect of your ministry here in this church, especially through its online presence and through the Chafer Seminary Conference. I hope to be back with you for that in March. And this is my third visit to speak before you, and uh, just a, a joy to be back. Perhaps I can be the first to wish you a happy Thanksgiving, and uh, hope that you're spending much time making it a meaningful Thanksgiving holiday season as we approach this day once again. It's my favorite holiday, and I've actually been doing some speaking already on Thanksgiving themes and I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. Well, I am Paul Scharf. My wife, Lynette, is back home in Wisconsin. And uh, we bring you our greetings and the greetings of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. As Pastor mentioned, uh, I guess you could say that I'm representative over this area because I've been given the task, at least uh, when I come here for short-term trips like I'm on, to, to minister here in Texas. It's been a wonderful opportunity, a wonderful uh, challenge, and as I said, it's my third time in your church, it's my third time in Texas on behalf of the Friends of Israel, but I'm already scheduling again to come back in March and Lord willing again next fall, and uh, we don't have a church ministries representative who lives in Texas. I'm from Wisconsin, serving primarily in the Midwest, but it's, it's just a uh, 
really been a delight to uh, get to work with churches here and to build on contacts and connections. And I've been here in the Houston area since Saturday. This is the fourth day in a row that I've had a uh, a ministry. And uh, I'll be leaving tomorrow with Dan Dark, who's in the area currently. He's not here tonight. He works in advancement for Friends of Israel. We'll be going up to Dallas and then I'll have four days of ministry in Dallas, and then heading home on Monday. So just a, a refresher, uh, I think everyone here in church with us tonight knows about the Friends of Israel. I'm sure there may be many watching, though, who don't. The Friends of Israel is a worldwide ministry that has existed since three weeks after the Holocaust began. We're approaching our 84th anniversary God's providence and grace upon our ministry. Please pray for the friends of Israel that we will continue to be faithful to share the biblical truth about Israel, which is sadly on the wane in so many quarters today. And we believe we're filling a void in churches. My primary responsibility is to be out preaching and teaching in churches, sharing that God still has a future for Israel. I know that you believe that. I know that all the pastors who gather here for the Chafer Conference generally, if not all, believe that, that he will fulfill every promise he's ever made to the people of Israel, every prophecy he's ever given, that as he has been with the people of Israel through their biblical past, as your pastor is teaching you verse by verse, as tonight in the book of Judges. So he is with them in the strategic present, and he will be with them through the prophetic future. We believe we're seeing God at work in history, setting the stage for the future fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And uh, Pastor alluded to that several times tonight, indirectly. What an amazing time in which to live. What an incredible time in which to serve the Lord through the friends of Israel. God has given us that privilege to share the truth about the Messiah with Jewish people. That's something we want to continue to learn and grow in, to help lead churches, to have a, a meaningful, thoughtful process of reaching out to Jewish friends and neighbors. Some perhaps thinking about that really for the first time, sadly, but at least we can get them thinking about it and we praise the Lord for that. Well, if you want to know more about Friends of Israel, our our long history and our vibrant ministry around the world, you can go to foi.org. And Pastor mentioned your connections with ministry in Ukraine tonight. We have lots of those same types of connections in the Friends of Israel. And that's been on the front page of our website through much of the year. And you can go and find all kinds of updates and news about things happening in Ukraine and Eastern Europe and how God has used these horrible events of the last year to cause many, many Jewish people. And you know there were many Jewish people in Ukraine before this war began. And God has used this to bring many of them back to Israel, to bring many of them to return to the land, to make Aliyah. And uh, what an interesting, amazing time in which we live. And uh, what a what a privilege to be involved in a ministry. I have not been to Ukraine. I have not done any of these things myself, but to just to be part of the ministry and to watch what God is doing 
as he is working in the Jewish people in their hearts and minds and lives today in a very real way. Our flagship resource, our global outreach magazine, Israel My Glory, I do have some items on a table in the room behind us here. And I invite you to take all of those, and I especially invite you to sign up on the list and receive a free year subscription to Israel My Glory magazine. And we would love to have you receive that. We would love to have you uh, join our contact list. I'll say more about that and come back to it in a moment. Here's our radio program, Friends of Israel Today, a weekly half-hour nationwide radio program. I'll say more about that again in a second. But let me return to my visit to Texas. This is a promotion for something that's now passed. But just to give you a little glimpse, this was a men's breakfast at Sugarland Bible Church. I was privileged to speak again there uh, this past Saturday, a wonderful group of men. And we talked about Thanksgiving and the pilgrims. That's a passion of mine that I've studied for many years. And uh, just uh, had a wonderful day there. I spoke out in Bastrop on Sunday. How many here know where Bastrop is? Oh, about everybody. Okay. I had a really fantastic day yesterday with Bruce Munsterman. I think you all know Bruce or his voice from KHCB. Uh, what a, the pilgrims, whenever something would happen, that they were just amazed at what God was doing. They had a word for that called God's unusual providence. And I consider this an unusual providence that I met Bruce a year ago, my first ministry day of my first trip to Texas for Friends of Israel, and he invited me to come to KHCB and record interviews. And he's invited me to come back every time I come back. By the way, I walked into the station yesterday and heard your pastor's uh, tones over the airwaves. And uh, so that was great to hear a friendly voice. And uh, then to conduct those interviews and to spend time with Bruce. And I tell you what, he's got some ideas to share with you about uh, possibilities for greater ministry and opportunities. What a wonderful thing that was. Well, here's where you can find all of my resources for my ministry within the Friends of Israel. It's on my page on sermonaudio.com. I know that's something you're familiar with here in this church. And uh, you can find all my resources there. You can find my, you can find the Friends of Israel radio program there if you want to make it real easy, and other Friends of Israel productions that I post there uh, as well. And you can keep up with all that as well as my messages, my uh, writings, my news updates. You can contact me. In fact, I'm sure you're aware of this because of your church connection and use on Sermon Audio, um, broadcasting through Sermon Audio, but we now have an app through our Sermon Audio page that's just part of being a broadcaster there. And if you download the Church One app, I'm sure you're going to want to plug in West Houston Bible Church if you attend here. But if you'd like to stay up to date with us, you can plug my name in instead and actually then you'll know what I'm going to be doing even before I do, if you'd like to keep up like that, okay? So that's up to you. We invite you to utilize that. And uh, But more, most importantly, stay up with us on Sermon Audio. And here's the, really the best way to keep up with us that we'd love to have you. Again, sign up on the contact list. Give consent with by checking the box and provide your email, and then you'll be on the Friends of Israel's email list 
and also on our email list, something that we've begun in the last year, coming up almost on one year with the help of an expert volunteer, is a personal weekly e-newsletter for our ministry within the Friends of Israel. And we'd love to have you receive that if you're interested, and it will keep you up to date in one short email each week with all the details of our ministry, upcoming trips to Texas, and uh, we would just be overjoyed to stay in contact with you in that way. I write a weekly column, and it normally runs on Fridays on sharperiron.org. You can find them on my sermon audio page. But here are some past ones from uh, the theme of Thanksgiving and the pilgrims from two years ago, a series on the pilgrims for the 400th anniversary of their landing. Last year for the 400th anniversary of the first Thanksgiving. I invite you to find all those if you'd like to read something to sort of uh, get you ready for Thanksgiving, if you're not quite there yet. Wonderful blessings that the Lord has uh, given us in the last year. Again, more of his unusual providence. Uh, my column also now runs at raptureready.com. And Jimmy DeYoung Jr. has added me as a broadcast partner uh, for his live streaming online uh, radio on prophecytoday.com and also to interview me on his radio program. Those are just wonderful blessings from the Lord. Pray for us. As I go back home, I'm going to be spending pretty much the rest of the year speaking almost every opportunity there is about Hanukkah in different churches. It's my second year of teaching on Hanukkah. I'm just fascinated with this subject, with its biblical importance, uh, how the, we find, you know, things related to Hanukkah in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. How many know Jesus celebrated Hanukkah and spoke a tremendous, powerful message about his deity in John chapter 10 on Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication? And that Hanukkah also has a role to play within future biblical prophecy. And so uh, please pray for us and pray for us these, through these holidays, through the end of the year, and into the new year as we work on our priorities, our schedule, our plans. And Lord willing, before we know it, we'll see you here again at the Chafer Conference. Uh, but above, above all, do please pray for us. Take my prayer card. I have other cards back on the table with the literature items as well. And uh, we would uh, we would be so glad and so honored for you to do that. Please uh, pray that God will supply and provide for us and pray for our ministry and pray for the friends of Israel. There's so much more that uh, I could share about our ministry, about the friends of Israel, you can find much more on our web pages, as I've referenced. I'd just like to close with a, uh, a short, uh, pointed thought here. I'm going to, I'm going to call it a, uh, you know, pra- there's practical theology. That's a, that's a division of, you know, seminary studies. This is a practical theological devotional. Okay, to close, and and and. Uh, will be done this evening. But I want to just uh, remind you of something, and I'm preaching to the choir, thankfully, here in your congregation with Pastor Dean, because as you 
No, obviously, as we've heard again tonight, he goes verse by verse through the scriptures and teaches the Bible. And that's what we want to do in the Friends of Israel. And that's what our ministry is all about, teaching the whole counsel of God uh, from Genesis to Revelation, from the past through the present to the future. And uh, what God says about Israel, which is all through all of that, and Paul said to Timothy, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you heard from me. I taught you, Timothy, as we traveled those dusty Roman roads together, mile after mile, month after month. Remember, Timothy, what I taught you. And what was Timothy to do with that invaluable truth, those treasures that Paul had imparted to him. Well, the following thoughts uh, come to me from my mentor, Dr. John Whitcomb, now with the Lord, who preached from this pulpit in recent years before his homegoing. And I'd just like to share them as a, as a challenge, as a reminder to us tonight uh, this was how he stated these things, and it's been helpful to me, that uh, really his ministry life verse was 2 Timothy 2, 2. The things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit these same things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And Dr. Whitcomb really had a way of uh, explaining to say that this is really a restatement, Paul's restatement specifically for the church age and for his disciple Timothy of the Great Commission. That when Jesus was talking about all the things that he had commanded, he wasn't just talking about the red letters in our Bibles, but he was talking about all of the scriptures, all the things Similarly, that Paul had taught Timothy everything, the whole counsel of God. Jesus said that we are to teach others to observe these things. And Paul told Timothy that he was to commit these things, notice, to faithful men, just as Jesus taught us, to make disciples of all the nations. We are to teach these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. As we take uh, Dr. Whitcomb's uh, life ministry verse, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, we chart it out, we can, we can make it look like this. The things that you have heard from me, from Paul, notice among many witnesses, Paul wasn't starting a cult, was he? He wasn't Timothy's only teacher. These things weren't done secretively. But they were, they were done in the presence of others. It was open public teaching. And Paul says to Timothy, these things, Timothy, I want you to commit them to not just everyone. Don't just take some little truth and scatter it and teach it to everyone, but find faithful men and teach them everything you've learned from me, that they might be able to teach others also. And in that way, the faith will be not only preserved, but propagated, and it will be the whole counsel of God 
that will go out into all the world just as Jesus had commanded. How did Paul do this? Well, this could be a whole extended study, but I'm just going to summarize very quickly and encourage you to go and search the scriptures and see if these things are so. And consider what I say, as Paul told Timothy, may the Lord give you understanding in all things. But as Paul was in Ephesus teaching in Acts chapter 19, when he encountered opposition, he departed, he withdrew from that opposition, went into possibly a a rented hall named the school of Tyrannus, And uh, that's not some kind of a dinosaur, by the way. But it does relate to the idea of tyrant. Some have suggested this was a nickname for the man who was the master of that school, that his students called him the tyrant. And perhaps Paul rented that hall during the hottest hours of the day when the normal occupants didn't want to use it. And he attracted disciples to this Ephesus seminary program. And notice verse 10 of Acts 19. This continued for two years. Two years of this intensive biblical teaching and training. And what was the result? The result of this seminary effort, if you will, that Paul instituted in Ephesus was that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. He taught these faithful men so intensively and extensively in the whole counsel of God that they went out and reached all of Asia with the gospel and with biblical ministry. And Paul could say in the next chapter as he's departing from Ephesus, and and he's weeping with the Ephesian elders, he could say to them, I testify to you, Acts 20.26, this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. And he said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, verse 27. How did he do that? By teaching everyone all day long from sunrise to sunset? No, but by teaching these faithful men who could multiply his ministry and take the whole counsel of God to all of Asia and thereby including a ministry to all of Ephesus. Well, I know this is the heartbeat of your church congregation. I'm not breaking any new ground for those who are part of West Houston Bible Church, but just reminding us of the importance of teaching the whole counsel of God, and also to share with you that this is also our heartbeat, our passion for our ministry and for the Friends of Israel. And pray for us that we will stay faithful in communicating everything that God has revealed in the Holy Scriptures that he's given to us, which teach us about his perfect plan for Israel and for the church, not only in the past and in the present, but in the future. God bless you and thank you for, again, this opportunity tonight to share with you, just to be back and participate with you in this small way. And uh, again, may I truly and sincerely wish you a happy, 
wonderful Thanksgiving, and since I probably won't be seeing you, um, we can even go beyond that and say Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and I hope to see you in the spring, and God bless you. Thank you so much. Pastor Dean. Conclude in prayer? All right, let's close in prayer together. And Father, we do thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for fellowship together. Thank you for um, the dear people here at West Houston Bible Church. Thank you for the many who watch and benefit from the teaching that is offered here at this very pulpit. And I thank you, Lord, for uh, all who are encouraged by it and pray that you will use it even further and extend the ministry of this church and multiply its effectiveness at this very important time. I pray, Lord, you'll bless the ministry of the Friends of Israel. Thank you for this church's interest and participation in that ministry. And pray that you'll bless our part within the Friends of Israel and my ministry trip as you have here in Houston so that you will bless it in Dallas. Lord, I just thank you and praise you and ask that you will use all these things to bring glory to yourself, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.